This is Jeff Steitzer, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Double kill, triple kill, overkill, killing spree, killing frenzy, Kilimanjaro, kill tacular, kill apocalypse, slayer, mmm, brains. <laughs> Welcome one, welcome all to episode 149 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, October 9th, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome Mike Chapman from Rare on to discuss his role as creative director for Sea of Thieves and just how much the game has evolved since launch, plus a few teases for the future. Prior to that, we'll discuss the roadmap laid out for future content out of CD Projekt Red, including The Witcher and Cyberpunk franchises. That and listener mail. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness are extended to all of you who took the time to enter into the review contest for XEP. Of course, we're giving away a copy of Gotham Knights on a system of your choice and two $20 Xbox gift cards. Currently, we have 86 reviews over on iTunes, 55 on Spotify, and we'll be announcing the winners on episode 150. Thus far, shout-outs to Famous Seamus, Todd Oxtra, Court Lalonde, Burnout Matt, Kevin Ainsworth, Blaze Knight, Mostly Martinez, and Twitter user Texas. So nice to have you guys dropping uh, screenshots of reviews that you've made over on iTunes. Uh, you can enter, by the way, for anybody that wants to know. You can enter by responding to, to one of the show's tweets with a screenshot of your review on iTunes or Spotify or both. That'll get you triple entries with a retweet as well. Uh, and then uh, you can just DM them to me or email me email me at uh, insipidghost at gmail.com. I've taken entries from all of those outlets. Appreciate all of you guys taking the time to do that. Uh, so appreciative of you guys. It is really cool to be on the eve of episode 150 uh, to have had some of the incredible interviews throughout the show's history and of late. Pretty dope, I think, all things considered. Uh, I'm really excited for you guys to hear from Mike Chapman. That was in the works for a long time, and I'm so, so happy we were able to get that one done. You ever have a, a moment where you have a conversation with somebody and then you can't stop smiling for you know a couple hours after that? That's what it was like to talk to Mike Chapman, generally one of the, the nicest dudes, and you guys are got to hear him uh, on this episode. Just a, a pure pleasure, and I hope you all enjoy it. Uh, if you're new to XCP, feel free to drop a review as well. Uh, at this point, we're about to hit 150 episodes, 80 plus industry interviews. Uh, I try to have an interview every three to four episodes, and thus far we were averaging uh, every two episodes, which is exciting. Have not locked down the guest for 150, and ironically, uh, we may not have a guest for 150, but that's cool. Uh, we're just seeing how it goes at this point. Uh, man, I'm just so overjoyed to see you guys taking the time to... Uh, lift up XEP, lift up me, I suppose, in, in that same sense, because we're synonymous here. Uh, 
and let it stand among the other incredible Xbox podcasts out there. It's really neat to see. So I'm appreciative of all of you. Uh, but I'm really excited for this episode as well. We've got some CD Projekt Red news uh, and uh, some really dope listener questions. So let's get into that. Well, without a doubt, stealing the headlines this week in Xbox adjacent news was CD Projekt Red outlining their roadmap for the next 10 years of content with shout outs to the Witcher and Cyberpunk franchise. This was a really cool thing, I think, that CD Projekt Red has done uh, because without a doubt, they have been one of the most odd studios to follow over the last few years. I mean, you look at a decade, we had Witcher 3, uh, and that that was just an incredible, incredible title. Game of the year in its year for me. Uh, just one of the best video games ever created was The Witcher 3. And then the subsequent expansions and support that game received, I think it was like 17 free DLCs uh, for people that purchased the game and a goodwill note for those that bought it. It was just such a great vibe surrounding CD Projekt Red. And then the paid expansions were just absolutely incredible with Blood and Wine being the standout. Uh, really cool when you see Witcher 3 and what they had happening there. Uh, and then they announced Cyberpunk 2077, a game that didn't come out until... Uh, like eight years after it was announced and a pretty frustrating launch. I know some people will, will go to bat and say, no, it wasn't a bad launch and whatnot, but it absolutely was so much so that PlayStation changed its policies uh, as far as refunds and stopped selling it. Xbox changed its policies as far as refunds. Um, pretty disastrous launch for Cyberpunk 70, 2077 and the promises made by the leadership at that studio really condemned some of the incredible work that people were doing there because the core of Cyberpunk 2077 uh, just incredible. I have finished my playthrough. I'm about, at about 70 hours. I uh, finished the story, finished all the side jobs. I'm, I've got like two more gigs and then I'm done with content. And uh, I would say that Cyberpunk 2077, just, just a quick aside before we get to the news, I really like that game. Uh, that had 50, 50 hours of great content, but the last 20 hours have been subs really substantially boring. As after you finish the story, all that's left is like Ubisoft style cleanup, which is great because the gameplay is fun, uh, but really lackluster open world that is way too big and way too detailed to have so few things to do in it. It's really odd. It's a really strange juxtaposition between this incredible open world with nothing to do. Uh, and I, I'm still baffled at the defenders of Cyberpunk 2077 talking about it being one of the best games ever made. I, I don't see that. I see a fantastic video game that I really enjoyed 50 hours in. But when I hear people talking about 130 hours and, and whatnot, same playthrough, I'm confused by that. Because I'm like, what are you? I don't know what you're doing. I was done with the bulk of content at 50 hours. Uh, hadn't unlocked many achievements despite that. Hadn't finished any like major skill trees because I wasn't guided to do so. Uh, and I, it left me feeling like I played the game wrong despite having an absolute blast, which is a really strange feeling to have. And uh, when people come out of the work, like, oh, well, you did play it wrong. It's like, okay, how do I fix that? And then I have other people saying like, no, it's, it's, it's been like that for me as well. It's been an odd journey to hear the defenders of 2077 uh, talking about it versus uh, those who have had very similar experiences. I would say it's a pretty polarizing game. Uh, in the conversation space, but I would encourage everybody to go play it because patches 1.5 and 1.6 have really made it an incredible experience. It's still got bugs. Uh, I don't understand when people are like, oh, the bugs are fixed. Nope, nope. Uh, talking to Mr. Badbit from the trophy room, he's experiencing very similar things. Still a buggy game, but but a blast, and I would encourage everybody to play it despite that. Uh, really fun 
really fun story there. Uh, really cool to see Keanu Reeves' performance. Love Cyberpunk 2077. Really love it. But it's a 50-hour game, and uh, that's not a bad thing in the slightest. It's just that when you're done, uh, I think you're. It, it, there's no reason to go back. I feel like I'm just kind of doing whatever while I wait for Gotham Knights, which is an interesting position. Uh, but I still encourage everyone to get it. Great video game. It's just that I've been told by so many that it was uh, the second coming of video games and so many people staunchly defended it as standing amongst the best with uh, God of War, The Witcher 3 and in its time perhaps Breath of the Wild though I don't think Breath of the Wild ages very well um, I just don't see that I, I, I don't get that out of 2077 but regardless of all that because I still think it's a fantastic video game I am super excited for this roadmap laid out by CD Projekt Red and I also want to talk about their decision to do that given how 2077 was announced so far in advance and how badly the leadership botched the promises for that studio and really condemned the talent in making it. Uh, because if this game had released on only PS5 and Xbox Series SX and PC, I think you'd have a very different narrative that goes with it. Uh, and I think people would have been very pleased and the development team would have been able to focus properly. Should never have been on Xbox One uh, or PlayStation 4 hardware. Just it really held that title title back from what it could have been uh, and divided development resources in a way that I don't think was conducive to making the best product, which is a, a tough choice in the business sense, but I don't think it was tough in hindsight. So, you know, hindsight's 2020, but what isn't what isn't hindsight 2020 is how badly uh, the leadership ruined the outlook for that game. So that's that's a frustrating thing. But anyway, back to what they outlined. They announced four projects over the next six to 10 years uh, that they are working on. And they cited just how many people are working on it and the scope for those projects, which is really interesting. Uh, the four projects, the first one being Phantom Liberty, which we know about. That's the final and only expansion for Cyberpunk 2077. That doesn't mean patches. That means expansion. At the moment, Project Liberty is, or sorry, pardon, pardon me, Phantom Liberty is in final production with roughly 350 staff members working on it. Uh, and of course, that's expected to launch next year. They have another project called Project Polaris, which is the first Witcher game in what will be a new trilogy. Currently, there's 150 staff members working on that one. And all three games for the new Witcher trilogy are set to be released within the six years of Polaris's launch. So the, the wording on that can be a little bit difficult, but Polaris, which is, again, the new Witcher title for a new trilogy, it's the first in a new trilogy. After that that game launches, you're, they're expecting the next two titles to be released within six years. So you have to imagine what they're going to be doing is creating the world, the open world, the engine, the physics, maybe not creating the engine, I should rephrase that, um, getting used to the engine and putting their... Uh, modeling and their elements, what they want for their game experience to be into that engine, which I believe is Unreal 5, though I don't know if that was officially announced. Uh, I'm inferring that based on the fact that they're transitioning away from their proprietary red engine that they used in Cyberpunk 2077, uh, and they're now going to be using it or using Unreal in their future projects for Cyberpunk. Uh, so I would imagine this is very similar and the same for what they're doing with The Witcher. It just seems like that would be best as far as production, but I don't know that in front of me. So again, Project Polaris, first in a new trilogy for Witcher titles, 150 staff working on it. And after that game releases, you'll have the next two games completing the trilogy within six years. At least that's the plan at this moment. So that's two projects, Phantom Liberty and Project Polaris. They've also got in the works something called Project Hadar, which is in pre-production and it started very late uh, in 2021. 
and it's in concept phase currently for a new IP. And that's just a small strike, uh, strike team of staff that is working. So that's interesting in and of itself. So there's, there's the three projects uh, as it works. And this is, this is the new IP and it's a very small group working on it, which is cool to know that there is a new IP in the works. That's not Witcher. That's not cyberpunk that we can see, we can see CD project red kind of fleshing out something new. And I have to wonder what it'll be. They've gone to kind of this fantasy element, which I think of historical, but that's not true, but like, you know, old school swords and goblins and dragons uh, with the Witcher, they've got futuristic, near futuristic cyberpunk elements, still, still using guns and hacking and such. Uh, and then what this new IP will be, I'm really curious to know, is it going to be some sort of space fantasy? Uh, it's going to be an RPG is going to be an action title. I'm really curious to know what it's going to be because outside of um, the Witcher three, they've done Gwent and they've done a bunch of other smaller Witcher titles and, and expansions that exist in that universe, but none of them would be what I would consider to be the next Witcher game kind of thing. So I'm really curious to know what it is they're going to be doing with that. Uh, and then they've got something called project Orion and project Orion is a 2077 sequel that will prove the full power and potential of the C cyberpunk universe. And this is being developed by CD project red team. And that's all the info we have. That's interesting to me uh, that they've announced all four projects with varying levels of detail as far as how many people are working on it and what they're doing. Love that phantom Liberty is uh, in final production. That's exciting given that I'm ready for more to do in that world. And I've been diff 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 disappointed with the post game of cyberpunk. So I'm really excited for the new new expansion. Phantom Liberty looks dope. Excited to see what project Orion brings. That's that unreal based cyberpunk 2077 sequel. Curious to know if that's the multiplayer element, because remember, multiplayer was pulled from 2077, and we know that they are hoping to have multiplayer in all of their future projects. Cool. Interested. Curious. Uh, Project Hadar, that new IP, and then Polaris, the first of a new Witcher series. A lot of people are wondering if this series is going to stem around playing as Ciri and the new house surrounding her, which I believe the theory is that it's the House of Lynx which didn't necessarily exist in the original Witcher trilogy. Curious about that. It's neat. It's cool. I'm excited to watch what happens with CD Projekt Red announcing their roadmap like this, their intended purpose for development. I think more studios should do this. I've seen a lot of people comment on this is good or this is bad and citing their different reasons for it. I am of two minds in some ways, but I'm pretty devout in saying that I love that this is the intention, the intended roadmap. This is what we're working on because what it does is it removes the ability for things to be leaked and ruined in terms of announcements. The caveat there is then you've got people expecting X, Y, or Z and disappointed when it's not. Uh, I think, and it's hard not to think about uh, 343 with Halo Infinite and just how troubled that development has been. We know that there's good stuff coming. The winter update's less than a month away. Uh, we know that Project Tatanka, despite despite their continuous refusal to acknowledge it, there's so many uh, reported elements for it that it's like, come on, guys, just just say it. But when you look at the development that 343 has had with you know Halo Infinite, it's like, man, if they had just announced their intentions but put an asterisk next to it, you know, subject to change working on it figure out what could happen i like transparency from studios so it's a really uh, interesting way to, to announce and go about video games and, and and what it is you're hoping to do there's also elements of well do they have to respond to shareholders or not 
I like what's happened with the roadmap from CD Projekt Red. I like their redemption story as far as cyberpunk. Um, I'm willing to give them a shot, given that much of the leadership has been called out appropriately. And they've done such good work in repairing cyberpunk as a brand and to help their studio's image. Uh, I know that a lot of people will cite edge runners as the reason people are back in cyberpunk. And that's clearly true, right? Like you can't deny that element. But for me, it was seeing patches 1.5 and 1.6 and seeing people go back into the gameplay and then being willing to give it a shot on what is now current gen hardware gave me the best experience possible for it. And I'm really glad I did it. I really love cyberpunk now and I have no interest in steam or cyberpunk universes so this was me playing a video game for video game's sake and walking away really pleased and really happy with it so ha good to know that that's happening uh for cd project red nice to see the redemption story really encourage everybody to check out 2077 i love the game if if that's a black friday thing for you do it pull the trigger if you see it uh, anywhere 30 bucks or below it's well worth your time for the performances alone. And for me, it was nice coming full circle. I was at E3 2019 when, he, when Keanu was out there saying you're breathtaking. And uh, it was a feel good moment. And to know that we've had so many ups and downs with that franchise, franchise rather, it was really cool to, to once again feel the love for CD Projekt Red in the same way that I had from The Witcher. And so shout out to them. Uh, shout out to everybody, every single developer that put up with some awful circumstances, conditions, etc., and was able to make a great product for gamers to enjoy. And I hope that uh, the people that made that game, the way that worked on it, that went through those bad times, I hope that they are doing well and their careers are thriving because nobody should have to crunch to make a piece of entertainment. No one. No one. Not in that, not in that unhealthy way. There's, a, there's times to work hard and times to work long hours, but crunch in in substantiated and consistent form is not good and not a, not a healthy thing so shout out to them cheers to them uh let me know what you guys think about this new roadmap that's announced for me it's got me excited uh, and bring on phantom liberty man i'm ready all righty guys listener mail time several good questions that i'm super stoked to talk about with you all uh, the first question comes from mine not made 93 what's up chris hope you're doing well he says which knight are you going to play as in gotham knights uh chris right now man i am all eyes on nightwing i am so excited for gotham knights uh in so many ways nightwing is where i've got my eye i've pre-ordered the special edition i'm hoping to get a review code i'm anxious by the way if anyone's doing spoiler casts or doing special coverage for gotham knights i would love to join any panels that are available my schedule is going to start clearing up pretty soon and by the time gotham Knights spoiler casts are available uh come early november and such i'll be ready uh, and i'll be playing the game a lot i'm really stoked for gotham knights uh and i think a lot of people are and I want to comment on a trend that I've been really frustrated with in the last three, four years. Uh, and, and that's people taking the time to see others that are excited for something and going out of their way to diminish it. Uh, and, and there's two approaches I want to take on this one. The first, of course, is with big, major titles that are, are top-tier quality games. Think Elden Ring. Think Cyberpunk. Think god of war think you know whatever it is for you that's the best of the best in terms of gaming and when these games come out you're expected to love and worship them otherwise you're a hater and that really sucks uh i had a really good question that came in from uh blue am cat and she asked about my favorite gaming memories from this past year and without a doubt one of my favorite gaming memories was 
when I realized that I loved Elden Ring because there's so much pressure to love the latest and greatest, most popular game. And people will shit all over you if you like seven, you know, like seven, 70 Metacritic games. They take their time to diss the game that you love for not being a 90 or above. And uh, I'll call out any and everyone that was like, hey, Luke, you, you suck for liking Avengers. Avengers is dead. And we're two years into Avengers. People still play it. People still enjoy it. It's still really fun to play. Um, it's not God of War, Cyberpunk, Witcher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's, a, it's rocking in the 70s, and it's fun for me to play. And when people take the time to crap all over what it is that you like, that's a really frustrating thing. And with Gotham Knights almost out, I think people are lining up to hate this game before they've played it, before they've experienced it, and lining up to hate it for not being Arkham, and lining up to hate it because it doesn't have Batman in it to start. Uh, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating, and I really don't like that that's happening uh, in gaming. I was terrified I wasn't going to love Cyberpunk 2077 because so many people told me it was God's gift to games, and it's not, but it's really, really, really freaking good, and I love it. And it's it's uh, just there's so much pressure to like the, the latest and greatest thing that you're not allowed to enjoy the 70s or the good games or you know the good, not elite games, and that's really hard to deal with. Um, and so... I'm stoked for Gotham Knights and uh, to heck with anybody that is taking their time to go out of their way to diss something that people are excited for. I mean, you know, live and let live. If Nintendo fans are excited for the the next Kirby game, God bless you. Go on, rock on, enjoy it. Uh, I don't get it, subscribe to it, and I don't care to take my time to tweet at you like, oh, that game's going to suck or whatever, because I don't know. It's not out. And if you like it, rock on. Uh, and so it's just a, it's a frustrating thing I, I I see so often, and it brings about fear. One of the reasons I didn't want to start Cyberpunk was because everyone told me how good it was, and that actually brought trepidation on my part because I'm like, yo, this isn't my this isn't a genre I'm into, this isn't uh, an aesthetic, you know, Cyberpunk that that I'm into, and yet I'm expected to think it's great. Uh, and I worry about that. I worried about that with Elden Ring. When Blue MCAT asked me my favorite memory from this past year, um, two came to mind. One of them being when I realized I loved Elden Ring. And then I ended up 150 hours in. But I loved Elden Ring without loving the genre, without loving Dark Souls, without loving Bloodborne. And by the way, shout out to Joe. I'm sorry, buddy, that you're not getting Bloodborne too. Uh, that stinks. Uh, it, it's it's frustrating. And so I had this moment of elation when I realized that I too love Elden Ring. It's a fantastic game that was so much more approachable than others in the genre and still had tons of problems, by the way, for any evangelist. Like it still does a terrible job onboarding new players, a terrible job explaining its story in a way that uh, doesn't require you to pull up a codex and do some research yourself. But it's a wonderful gameplay experience. And so when I realized that I loved that game, I was ecstatic. Uh, it made me so happy, Blue Amcat. And on the eve of Gotham Knights, I'm so stoked for that game. That's my most anticipated game of this year. I don't expect it to be the next Elden Ring, but I am so excited to just play it and be in the world of Gotham, be in the DC universe that I love. Uh, and I, I think as a fan, we should be able to do that without others going after us. And so that that's just an overarching, 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 overarching? arcing, I think, uh, uh, thought that I consistently have when a game is coming out that I'm excited for, that people are lining up to dislike before it's been, been out, and their their reasons are, well, it's not an Arkham game, 
or because Avengers didn't do it. She's like, shut up. Like, Avengers is rocking. It's doing its thing. It's got its audience. Two years in, it's not dead. It's living its life, right? Uh, games ebb and flow, and, and there's a time where the 70 Metacritic game will shut down and whatnot. But, like, there's there's no reason to go out of your way to dislike something that's not for you. If it's not for you, it's not for you, right? Like, live and let live. Live and let live. Uh, I want to finish answering, though, Blue MCAT's uh, question about favorite moments. My other moment is not a specific one, but uh, the health of my one of my best friends, James Suddy, is in decline. And so every time we can game together is precious and good and happy. And so I really enjoy those moments, like getting to tease him about his kids in the background. Um, we use dark humor to excuse the situations. And uh, I think I've been going too hard into it because I'm so worried and scared for my friend. But at the same time, like, I love those moments, even if we're playing a game I'm not super into at the time. Like, I'm ebbing and flowing. I love Fortnite, but like, it's not feeling right now. Jumping in with them feels good. It feels fun. Uh, so so those are kind of my two favorite moments. Realizing I loved Elden Ring and then getting to play with Study is, is a good vibe. A good vibe. Uh, let's see. Blue MCAT also asked what I'm looking forward to during Black Friday sales. I've thought about this. Um, I usually buy the games that I want when I want them. Uh, I'm in a unique position as a content creator that I sometimes get codes for free. And I'm much more fortunate than I was 10 years ago in that I can now purchase games without having to worry, without having to budget in a way that I used to. Um, and that's a, a privilege and something that I, a luxury, I should say, that I didn't always have. So Black Friday sales are a bit less important to me than they once were. However, for years, I've been avoiding Red Dead Redemption 2 for the same reasons that I talked about with Cyberpunk uh, and Elden Ring and whatnot, that everyone's telling me it's so great. And I'm just like, what if I don't love it? Uh, it doesn't look fun to me. Whereas I loved Red Dead Redemption 1, got the Redeemer achievement, love that game. Red Dead 2 does not look exciting. And so like i'm worried like if it's 20 bucks yeah i'll get it i'll get red dead 2 and have a go um ainsley bowden consistently tells me that it's god's gift to gaming he did the same thing with cyberpunk with his yellow chair sellout <clears throat> uh and he's yet to buy me that game for all the work i've done for season gaming it's very little work i don't really do much work for them uh so you know we'll see we'll see but probably red dead 2 maybe maybe it's time maybe it's time i need a good a good narrative story game that's like deep and, and intricate the way that cyberpunk is and so much. I need one of those for the winter because I think Gotham Knights live service and sea of thieves live service approaches will serve that purpose, but I don't, but I need like a story game. So maybe that'll be it. Maybe that'll be it. This has been, by the way, 2022 has been a great year for playing catch up on games. And so that's been kind of the one, not the one, but like one of several nice side effects for the lack of, first party AAA games out of Xbox is that I've been doing a great job catching up on my third parties that I've missed. Uh, and that's been a pleasure. I've liked that. So yeah, that answers uh, your que questions there. Blue Amcat. You're awesome. Thank you for listening. I don't know that you've written in before, so appreciate you. Let's see here. This one comes from Mr. Kevin Ainsworth. Uh, shout out to him. He's over there uh, rocking it. At Project X talk. He says, Luke, I know you're a big DC fan. I just finished in justice too. Hey, look at that. He's finishing games. In this year where we have time to do it. He says, wondered if you've played it. Uh, who'd you side with at the end? Who was your favorite fighter? So, spoilers for Injustice 2. Uh, you can probably guess it was a Batman versus Superman narrative because it's Injustice and Superman goes rogue and creates his own regime. Um, I loved Injustice 2. I thought Injustice 1 and 2 stories were just incredible. 
did not like the gear system at all in Injustice 2, but that didn't affect the story and the gameplay was still a blast and a lot of the characters, so many characters for the DC universe. I really loved that as well. Um, I sided with Batman at the end. I sided with Batman. I was not one to say that uh, the regime should continue getting powerful. Superman, you know, ruling the universe, being evil, not how I want to see my heroes. So I sided with Batman, the idea of justice, the idea of fighting the good fight. That's always going to be my choice. Many times in video games, I've tried to make the bad choice and my heart doesn't let me do it, uh, which stinks. Uh, So yeah, I sided with Batman and I'm absolutely into it. Uh, You also asked me which my favorite fighter was and I interpreted it when I did my notes as my favorite fighting game which was Street Fighter 4, but my favorite fighter in the game is probably what you actually meant. That is tough. Um, I'm good with Green Arrow, like really good with Green Arrow. I won a year of Game Pass off of Xbox Canada's like pro player once uh, playing against Green or playing as Green Arrow. Uh, Let's see. I really like Batman, although he's a pretty standard character to get into. Superman, same thing. Uh, I was bummed their DCEU outfits were so hard to get and just use that was the problem with the gear system and cosmetics before they did transmog um but batman superman and green arrow were like my mains however when i was playing it i had probably about 10 characters i could rotate through Uh, with fighters i go in and out of, of in the zone for it and so at the time it was good the one character set that i never was able to get was the ninja turtles like i could not unlock it well use them well in a way that i think good players could Uh, which was kind of a bummer uh, for sure. But yeah, Green Arrow, man. And I loved the first Injustice as well. And in those, it was easy to put on the DCEU uh, outfits. And so rocking Green Arrow's outfit from the show Arrow back when it was good in the first two, two, maybe two and a half season uh, parts of the seasons. uh, That was cool. Next to the DCEU uh, Superman, Henry Cavill's outfit. And so like that was that was fun. I enjoyed that for sure, for sure. Uh, let's do last questions coming out here. Uh, Famous Seamus, he says, what do you recommend to help get into the Halloween spirit? I'm already planning on playing the Dead Space trilogy, but I would like other recommendations. So I've been toying with this. I think I talked about it in last week's episode as well, if you missed it. Uh, I always recommend Pumpkin Jack. I always recommend Resident Evil 7 and Left 4 Dead. Those are great games. But currently I'm playing Back for Blood, and I'm really enjoying that game right now. Um, didn't hit the way it should have. Uh, I know I talked about this last week. It's it's got plenty of errors and problems, but I think it's a great modernization of Left 4 Dead, and that's a good way to go. I still wish it had witches. I think that was the coolest part of atmosphere for Left 4 Dead was the, hearing the witches, uh, like crying and moaning in the background in pain, and like that really gave a horror vibe. So I wish Back for Blood had that, but I recommend Back for Blood. And then, of course, there's a great game called Savage Halloween, which is really fun. It's five bucks. It's on all platforms. Get that game. It's basically Contra, uh, where you have a Halloween aesthetic. And that's it. Like it's just a Halloween aesthetic contra, and it's really fun. Like you're shooting, uh, you're you're shooting zombies, and you're you're fighting grim reapers and ghosts and stuff. There's my puppy. She's jumping up there. She's a pretty one. Uh, hi, sweet girl. And so I would say Savage Halloween. That's a good one. Uh, as far and then his second question, by the way, this one's fun. He says, "What is your most horrifying moment in a non-horror game?" Uh, jump scare has to be. Oh my gosh. In Arkham Knight, if any of you all have played Arkham Knight, uh, there is a moment where, and you can't predict this, like you can know that it's going to happen and it won't change the fact it's going to scare the mess out of you. Where you're just zoom, zip zapping around Gotham and then uh, Man Bat will jump out at you and it is horrifying. You have no idea it's coming. They don't do a good job of uh, preparing you for it. And that's a good thing, right? Like it really helps with the ambiance. 
But man, I screamed. I screamed the first time I played it. I screamed the second time I played it. I think I've beaten Arkham Knight. Well, I did it on Xbox and PlayStation. And I have just, it, it got me every time. So that's that's the most horrifying moment there. Uh, and then you have like other times where like you'll lose an objective. Like in Sea of Thieves, losing a million gold worth of treasure has happened to me before. And that's horrifying in many ways. But uh, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm looking at. All right, guys, I think that's a good place to stop. I, I'm so grateful for all of you that are supporting XCP. This is episode 149. We're about to talk to Mike Chapman from Rare. How cool is that? An Xbox first-party studio here on the show. And I've been working really hard to, to see if Xbox can't recognize XCP or note uh, that there that, that it exists uh, you know how like you see some like it was really easy for kind of funny xcast to get noticed by the elite over at microsoft it was really cool to see uh, gamertag radio get their clout and see uh, so many other xbox shows i'd love for xcp to be amongst that, those realms and for aaron greenberg to know that xcp exists and so it's it's been a goal of mine to have them notice it and i'm hoping around uh, episode 150 maybe they'll see that's what's happening and so it was really cool to get to talk to mike a first party studio we've had on people from crystal dynamics uh we've had on people like ed freeze who was one of the original uh, xbox uh, team developers we had seamus blackley the original xbox creator on the show uh, very first episode we had people from red blue games who made sparklight uh, we had people on from steel series and talked to some amazing people like andrea renee and mike bithel Sissy Jones, we had Jeremy Gritton to talk about Ori. There are just so many wonderful names in in the pantheon of guests to come on and talk about the games that they're developing, uh, that we've gone to 84 interviews, 84 interviews and 150 episodes uh, with Mike Chapman being the most recent. It's just really, really cool to see. And so uh, I hope that you guys will join me in celebrating episode 150 next week, whether there's a guest or not. You'll take the time to review the show on iTunes, Spotify, etc. Um, and yeah, we got giveaways to go as well. That's it for me, guys. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Enjoy the interview with Mike Chapman. Take care. Well, it is my great pleasure now to welcome Mike Chapman, creative director on Sea of Thieves from Rare. Mike Chapman, welcome to XEP. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for asking me to be on. Pleasure to be here as always. It is a longtime goal of mine to welcome uh, developers on that are, are part of the games that I play on the daily. And uh, as such, I will apologize on the front end and say that if I fanboy at any point and lose my professionality, um, my bad, but I can't help it, my friend. You're here and I'm excited. Excited. Thank you very much. Well, Mike, uh, start me off just real simple here. How long have you been working at Rare? So funnily enough, next month, uh, it will be 10 years. 10 years. Coming up for the 10th year, which I... Yeah, I mean, I, I knew it was coming up, but it certainly doesn't feel like 10 years. Um, but yeah, lots happened in 10 years as well. Well, certainly so. When you when you arrived at Rare, uh, was Sea of Thieves a glimmer in your eye? Did you even know about it? Was it a thought or were you there for another project? Not at all. I was there for to work on the Kinect Sports series. So I, yeah, I joined I joined Rare as a, as a Rare fanboy, having worked at uh, Blitz Games and Codemasters. And always, 
always wanted to work at Rare, that studio always meant so much to me growing up, playing their games amongst many other games. Um, but no, I, I joined Rare at a time when the studio was working on Connect Sports. Um, and then we finished that Connect Sports title, and yeah, the rest is history. The chance to create a new IP for Xbox, which is, you know, what a, what a privileged position as part of, uh, I, I guess, a, a kind of new phase that the studio entered into with the, the kind of end of the Connect Sports games, which were, which you know, had their had their kind of pleasures to work on, uh, but the chance to work on a completely brand new game. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly been the the highlight of my career so far, and I'm just so thankful it's been at Rare. Well, it's wild to think about what Rare has done for the gaming industry and the different genres that it's touched on. I mean, for goodness mm. sakes, oh, yeah. Rare Rare Replay itself was the kind of the pivotal moment that that taught the engineers they could do backward compatibility, and then mm. we, we experienced this immense catalog and. Then you have the Connect the Sports phase, which which is, I would argue, different from what you would have expected from a rare game. And then Sea of Thieves, again, different from a rare game, and yet still the same magic somehow. Yeah, I think, I mean, genuinely, I think that is Rare's superpower. You know, the chance to, the opportunity to apply that creativity to so many different genres and then play their role in really defining those genres and creating those standout titles. I think in many ways, I look back on what I learned. Um, the only you know, Connect Sports was the only Connect game I've made in my career. Um, you know, that was, that, was a, that was a big thing back then. And I think going beyond just thinking about a controller, but thinking about player psychology and how people relate to game mechanics without the abstraction of a controller... I believe in many ways armed us really well for the game we were going to make in Sea of Thieves. And it was a pirate game as well. And, and you know, so many fans of Rare will recognize that. I think Rare's always had this love affair with pirates. Um, mm. So when I think many of us early days of Sea of Thieves felt like, God, this is, this is the chance to define what a Rare game is um, at this point in history. Which mm -hmm. and thankfully we've we've been able to build it over the years that we have and find a thriving audience and it's it's still got this thriving social life where new fans are always coming in and it's it's a big part of Xbox as a platform and and you know for for me as well as a not only a fan of Rare and you know working at Rare professionally and, and being a designer throughout my career like I was as a huge fan of Xbox as well, to see Sea of Thieves up there with some of these beloved titles on Xbox is, it's, it's a real pinch me moment. I would have to think so. I mean, for all the uh, frustrations or concerns of the Xbox One era, Sea of Thieves really rose into, to, to find itself in that era. How different or similar, I suppose, is Sea of Thieves now from what you first envisioned when you started on the project, and and when 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 did you guys start Sea of Thieves development? It was uh, around April May, very first conversation around May twenty fourteen, mm -hmm. if memory recalls. Mm -hmm. So a long long time ago, um, those early conversations around looking out there in the industry and trying to see where there was a creative opportunity we could 
create something new. Mm-hmm. Um, so that those conversations started in in 2014, and I think over that first year, the idea of a game that would be as fun to watch as it was to play, a game that would feel fundamentally like a rare game, it would have a timeless art style. It would be wrapped in this you know, universal theme that everybody understood, and 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 even back then the idea that the game would have a close relationship with its community and it would be it would grow over time that was right there in those early days so i think the the core vision for the game was 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 always one of the most strongest aspects of course there's 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 specific features we've done and mm-hmm. some of the details of our storyline that of, of course we didn't plan out all the way back then, but I still think the themes and the creative principles you can you can trace those all the way back to those early days. And I I often I often say this to the team at the studio, which is you know especially for new people that join us, you know some people that join our team they they know more about Sea of Thieves than they do about Rare because they're big fans of the game and they're coming to work at the studio and having a chance to work on it. I always mm-hmm. say take a look at the art book. Um, that we released back in 2018 that we were creating before we'd even released the game and there's so there's so much content in that that really make up the journey of almost five years since 2018 our original launch there's something like with the the kind of the siren culture a lot of the ship cosmetics a lot of the items that we added post-launch a lot of the creatures a lot of that that is a lot of that was in our minds and was in some of those early trailers um and the the big thing i mean just to just to put a bow on that was, you know, the idea that the game would launch and there would be a core experience there, but we were going to evolve and grow the game alongside our community and their feedback would guide specific decisions that we would make on what content we prioritize and what experiences we brought to the game. You know, we we talked quite extensively about that in those early days of doing podcasts and doing interviews before the game ever came out. So it's 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 been a it's been a long and, and windy road um but i think you know really proud of the game that we conceived back in those early days and and the game it's it's kind of grown into to become and in many ways we're just getting started um mm-hmm. you know to say that almost 5 years in is unbelievable in many ways and i know you you mentioned some some names of fans before we before we started recording and you know, that's reached out to you and um, kind of shared their thoughts and questions you want to ask them. And, and I think, you know, these wonderful fans that we meet, we'd see if these mean so much to them. You know, it, we feel the same way. We've all been on this long journey with Sea of Thieves and we love the game as much as our fans do. You know, we want to see it thrive. We want to see if we, if we'd want to see it live forever if we could. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd, we're, we're in this wonderful period of time at the moment where, We've got a rich sandbox. We've got a great core experience. We've got a wonderful community. And we've got so many creative opportunities ahead of us to keep, you know, turning Sea of Thieves into the, you know, the full fruition of what it could ultimately be. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that, in, in, you know, incredibly exciting. Um, yeah. <laughs> Man. So there's there's several, there's so many places to go with, with what you said. And um, 
I'm thinking about how you you talked about launching the game. Some features there, some not. Some things you know you wanted to do, what some not. Uh, how stressful is it to launch a live service game that you know you're going to evolve? But I think we've seen a lot of examples of live service games that didn't quite click here or there with its community and it missed the mark on its launch version versus the vision that they had. How stressful was that for you guys to, to make those choices? I mean, particularly given season seven just brought us captaincy, something you guys had planned to do very early on and then yes. moved. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, there's so many ways to answer that question. Um, of the so many teams at Rara, central services team, you know, the realities of keeping a game running that's live. Um, you, you know, the, the, there's so many ways to kind of hit on that question. I, I think personally, the the run to our original launch, it's it's a mix of, you know, how motivated it it, it was to to almost launch this game, which we believed in so much. But it like honestly, it was it was incredibly stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, we I mean, our relationship with our community started way before launch. We had our insider program. You know, we had alphas, we had betas, we had a, we had players coming in, giving feedback. We had playable versions of Sea of Thieves that we took to E3, which went down, and Gamescom, which went down incredibly well, and we won a lot of Best in Show awards. So we knew, even before all those things happened, that there's, there's such a spark in this game. There's something so special about this. No one has made a game quite like this before. Um, and there was some validation through our insiders playing the game and what they thought of it. and the reception when we took it to E3. But what that initial version needed to be and trying to get a ver- and a first version of the game together, you know, to sit there on a store shelf, it was incredibly stressful. And, you know, in many ways, I think we look back on that time. Well, I mean, the day after, day two, day two, or day one at launch, you know, you got the sense of, you know, people weren't happy with the content offering back then, March 28th, 2018. Um, and that that at the time was, it was, you know, you can see in the original Metacritic, it was absolutely, it was crushing. Um, it was, yeah, it was quite distressing at the time. Um, but then we, I mean, we never, we never faltered. It was, it was a case of we're going to do what we always said we were going to do, which is evolve this game with our community and you know we had a fantastic team that had already you know we honed our relationship we'd we'd you know we'd made these incredible friendships at work you know we you, this wonderful dynamic and this team spirit mm-hmm. um we just continued straight into you know what we wanted to do which was what's the right roadmap for year one that's going to expand the series experience and give people the experiences that they want in a game like this um, and then every year, almost having a little inflection point and thinking, okay, do, what do we think about our plans now? What are we thinking ahead for for the year? And and I think we each year the game has got bigger and bigger. And and the really interesting thing is the team has got bigger and bigger every mm-hmm. single year as we've expanded our team, so we can continue to be ambitious and keep doing interesting new things. So the CFU's team now is bigger than it's ever been. Um, since How 2018 into oh, i mean it's i'm gonna get this wrong because we've got a team at rare and we've got a lot of partner teams um mm-hmm. that, that work with us but we are 
we must be upwards of easily upwards of 300 people, mm, um, wow. which are, uh, let me just say, I mean, compared to some huge games out there, I mean, that that's not much at all, but um, for, for a game where, you know, that the, the creative, you know, the creative core is back at rare, you know, to keep that communication flowing and we're, we're doing multiple things in parallel at any one time. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is, that is quite a lot of people to keep pulling in the, in, in the right direction. In that first year, because that anniversary update was, was special. That's what, what brought me back. And, and <laughs> it's great to that, work on as well. It, yeah. That there's, I have the, my fondest memories. And that's not true. Many fond <laughs> memories of see if these are come from that anniversary update, but I'm curious in the lead up to that, from that distressing set of, of, of launches that you talked about in that. Yeah. Well, I'm laughing guys... at myself now. I use the, I use, yeah, it, well, I, I think, yeah, I don't take the impression that I was, um, I was distressed for weeks, but there was definitely in the days after launch, I would yeah. say I was personally distressed because um, like so many people on the team, you pull your heart and soul into it, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I feel, no, you're great. I, I feel comfortable asking this because we've had such a success story, but how does leadership approach making sure this team's okay? We talk a lot about the health of teams and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. How do you guys make sure that, uh, you know, you keep your team, forgive the pun, afloat in those, <laughs> in those early moments or is Xbox proper calling you? I mean, you know, is Phil on the phone or is this a matter of you guys are taking care of each other internally to make sure you get to where you want to go, uh, you know, in that in that first window of time. That's a great question. No, thank you for asking that. I, um, I mean, it goes without saying that you know, leadership at Xbox would be well, would have the the morale and the well being of the team first and foremost. Especially, well, especially with a game like Sea of Thieves. But you know, the responsibility is on Rare and and the team at Rare to you know ensure that. What's being what's be, what's being asked of us isn't mm-hmm. isn't out of the realms of possibility that we can still have a a good work life balance, especially with Sea of Thieves. When I mean, there's more of these types of games now where you you don't just you don't just launch the game and then we all go on holiday and we all mm-hmm. you know kind of toast you know what a wonderful couple of years we've had and we now we've got the game out. That was just a line in the sand that we crossed mm-hmm. um, back in 2018. So very much. It's, it's it's the term right it's, it's a marathon it's mm-hmm. not a, it's not a sprint so you can't you can't keep um you know a, an unhealthy work-life balance f- for almost five years i mean that that would be catastrophic to a team's morale health well-being uh, mental health i mean that would be that would be a, a, a terrible thing um so there's there's obviously a big focus on the things we go do, being able to do them in a sustainable way, and that's absolutely key. And, and don't get me wrong, there have been times over the last five years, you mentioned anniversary, where even now we'd look back and go, I think that we, we probably took push too hard as a mm-hmm. team, um, where we, you know, we doing nine tall tales, doing the arena at the same time, building fishing. I mean, it was an, inc- it was an incredible release, um, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of long hours um poured into anniversary release and, and some of their bigger you know the really kind of big releases like a pirate's life i mean people get really passionate about things um myself included and, and certainly the you know the team the art team and the design team the engineers and, and the people that are working all hours keeping the game running i mean it's it's a big commitment to once the game is live you can't 
you can't turn it off once you've committed to a experience a content release you know you want to do everything within your power to make it reality Mm -hmm. um because you almost you you daydream about the reactions of fans before they've even been able to play it and that's Mm -hmm. the thing that really keeps you going so it's something that we i think it's a process i think it's something you constantly need to check yourself on um Mm -hmm. It's certainly something I'm quite conscious of as as creative director and, and as a leader at Rare is almost trying to set the best example um, and and not not you know not not push it too far and make sure that we scope things accordingly. Um, but it's it's a constant challenge because you're in a creative industry um, and you know truly your your heart gets entwined with it quite quickly. You know, building building something that you know CFE's fans are going to truly love. You you get really wedded to something, um, and it's hard sometimes to make the hard choices to cut a feature or scale it back. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of the hard parts of the job, really, which is trying trying to build something that you believe in as a set of creators that you know is going to have an impact with fans, but doing it in a sustainable way. It's a constant challenge. It's interesting because so many things go through my mind from the outside looking in as a non-game developer. uh, So many things that you're saying bring up other stories in my mind about other teams. You know, I look at uh, 343 trying to push out a live service alongside a campaign for Halo (laughs) Infinite. And that's got, yeah. yeah, and And they are asked to do so much for that franchise. And then... I look at what happened with Rockstar a few weeks ago where their their, their work was leaked and then mm, it's terrible. All, yeah. It was terrible, but can I tell you the almost beautiful response <laughs> from so many other developers, including Rare, sharing yeah. early builds of their games. Uh and and the conscious effort, I think, amongst leadership teams, not all, but some, uh, to to keep their talent, their people healthy. That's been beautiful. And then I also wonder how to to put that adjacent to the expectations of the business element of serving a community and that's got to just be the hardest thing in the world to balance the two to keep the project alive but similarly make sure your people are okay it 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 is it really is and putting new content out into a live experience where Obviously, there's a managed downtime and then the servers need to come back up with that new content and everybody's in sync again. And keeping that going in a seamless way possible is just that would be hard if you're making only very tiny changes, Mm -hmm. Um, especially for a team that's doing it for the first time, um, which it certainly was for Rare. um, And it certainly is for a lot of studios making games like this. It's it's incredibly difficult. um, And you know, social media being the way it is. And, you know, you know, for many people, it comes from a place of affection and love. People get really bought into these experiences, as you always hope they do, um, as I would. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, it's tough to manage expectations while still building something that you believe in, um, while, yeah. what, as part of a service that needs to evolve. But it, fundamentally, it needs to be live 24-7, 365 days a year it's a it's a it's a big thing um so it's not been perfect there's been ups and there's been downs as as we've learned as a team but um as you would expect and certainly don't see that negatively see that with optimism and excitement that mm-hmm. we've the team has learned those lessons as a studio 
we've leveled up, if you will, like in, in terms of what we can do and the scale at which we can do things. So that makes me so optimistic about what we could do in the future and how we can keep growing this fantastic experience that we've built over the years. You've mentioned the community a few times, and you and I chatted about Xbox Mike and Logan. Hello, gentlemen. As I said, <laughs> hello to you, mid-interview. Um, hello, Captain. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious if Rare is unique among game studios in the way they handle community feedback, because to your point, social media can be brilliant. It can also be uh, toxic in some ways. But you guys have Sea of Thieves Fest, the Insider Program. Mm. You're communicating nonstop. You're here with me right now. How much has the community impacted the game's current state? And I don't mean mysteries in this case. I mean, like, overall. I, I genuinely think, that, oh, no, there's, there's, like I said earlier, there's, there's certainly features and mechanics that um, we probably wouldn't built. We wouldn't have built um, unless there was kind of feedback from the community in that area. And it's not always a case of people are saying specifically, what this what a feature is and the mechanic they want it, part of the part of the job i guess is to look in the area that we get feedback from our fans and they might not be telling you exactly what they want mm-hmm. um but it's our job to almost dissect that work out what they're really saying and then devise a creative solution that still feels completely new to them and and doesn't sacrifice to see if these creative principles it still needs to feel fundamentally sea of thieves so in many ways you you know before before a game like sea of thieves being a live service game you'd have inputs from the team people who are on the team and you know people are people rare and i'm sure all the game you know all game studios and all creative industries you've it's just a hotbed of creative ideas anyway and any one of those ideas can kind of steer what you could ultimately do but i think we've got this other input which is this community that has got bigger and bigger each year we're passionate about the world of sea of thieves and because it is a fantastical pirate world there's no shortage of ideas both internally and from our community so i think there's definitely areas where there's been feedback and then we've we've kind of devised a solution for that area um but then there's all the things that I think we dreamt up and had in our minds that have been quite hazy out in the future. And then we've prioritized what we brought in mm-hmm. based on player feedback. Um, so in many ways, we, like, we've got we've got plans for the future of CFE, you know, stretching multiple years out into the future. Um, but we might we might be thinking, well, that, that's a feature. We're probably going to build that in 2024. But mm-hmm. we get a lot of fan feedback or generally the the temperature around certain types of gameplay just changes and it's something we're always looking at then we go you know what mate that needs to be 2023 we need to bring that earlier Mm -hmm. um so we've done that quite a few times over over the past of almost having something in mind but then prioritizing it or pushing it back um based on where the 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 fan discussion is and what the community response is you mentioned it earlier on we absolutely wanted to build ship captaincy as one of our first updates post-launch um and it makes complete sense why you know the idea of being a captain in this world it's it's it makes so much sense in the sea of these world it's all part of that that role play and the idea of being a ship captain in a pirate world has always suited sea of thieves but that people weren't asking for that when we launched the game people were asking for well 
there's a there's a great foundation here i'm paraphrasing there's a great foundation here but there needs to be more things to do more depth mm -hmm. more things to engage while you're out there on the waves and then that's what we made all of that first year ending an anniversary about like filling out that sandbox and enriching it so that ability to create these wonderful player stories out on the waves there was just more ingredients and if there's more ingredients in that sandbox your story my story are more likely to be more unique so we made that first year all about adding new ingredients to that sandbox um and beyond and and, and you know enriching the game in all those various areas uh, in the following years with the, obviously the, the tall tales and and different quest types and new mechanics um but yeah it took a few years but yeah we certainly came back to came back to captaincy and there's there's there's, there's of course other things that we're thinking of for the future that, that we'll get to it's just a matter of time man okay so there's you said like four things that i'm like oh i have to Sorry. ask about this Sorry. no it's great i um i'm curious though but the 2024 thing the 2023 thing is that really how it is like do you guys have like a whiteboard where you think possible features for this year possible for this window of time and then it's moving back and forth or are these just offhand discussion moments like is there a place where these are written down as thoughts yeah 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 absolutely there's it's not just we're going to go do you know feature x you know if for season x we're going to go do this specific thing it, it's a lot of it is is taking it's that journey starts with our own team mm -hmm. um justifying why what the principles are behind it why we should go build a feature like this um, so before we even start designing it or lock it in as a plan, there's almost an internal pitching process to start mm -hmm. taking people on the journey. So, like, I mean, it does end up getting written down on a whiteboard, but it starts mm -hmm. live probably, well, normally as a PowerPoint pitch, essentially, um, where it kind of breaks down where we are in Sea of Thieves. You know, here's some creative opportunities laid out into the future and, and the why behind them. Um, and then, And then I always have that fun, probably every year or two looking back on oh look there's a future on the seas i wrote that document in 2021 and open it up and it's it, you know it's 60 percent right or 40 percent right because we've moved things around uh, and there'll be things in those old pitches and you go we've still not done that but we still go we'll still plan to do it so i think things move around all the time and it, it's it's not just it's not just the community feedback it's not just what we want to do divorced of any scoping it's also mm -hmm. which team is available um which team is experienced in each area which you know we, we obviously try and spread those that knowledge around our teams um how much dev time do we have for a specific release all of these mm -hmm. things as as you get closer they start solidifying and they really help you with the decision making um so yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it, and it's just you're just constantly adjusting plans as you go. If there's ever to be a documentary or such on the first few years of Sea of Thieves, I think it would be so cool to see some of those internal like this is what we plan to do, this is what came out, and do comparative points because the idea that there is a whiteboard or a PowerPoint of possible features, like what a cool thought process to compare it to. The product that is out now i think that's just a neat thing to consider uh it, it'd, and... be, it'd be a long documentary <laughs> it really would i'll pay for it uh <laughs> I, i'll throw some dollars there so there's some ancient coins your way for that one it'd be just a neat 
uh, concept for sure. It, it I, would. And I was going to say just quickly, I, please. I think the thing that excites me about the prospect of doing something like that is, I think, you know, if, if it's the right documentary, you try and, try and capture that candid look behind the scenes. The thing that would excite me about that is just giving that little window into how people work together and what they're really like, because genuinely the people on the Sea of Thieves team love this game. You know, it all comes from this place of passion really for the game and a love of the community and, and trying to genuinely do new and different things that excites them. And there's so, there's so many times we're, we're just sat there and I'll be, you know, around the, the desk of our lead artist and be like, if only players could be a fly on the wall and see this content that we're building and how we're building it, the discussions that we're having, it would absolutely blow them away. But there's some, there's some wonderful people at the studio. And I think, you know, a documentary that could put them in the spotlight would be wonderful. Who knows? Who knows? I, I so hope that as gamers, we get a moment like that somehow because the peek behind the window at the people creating the art to me is as important as anything else, uh, for sure. My, yeah, Mike, no, you mentioned you mentioned multiple times you said the team and then you said the teams working. And, and you're mm. alluding, I believe, to like internal teams that focus on different aspects of the game. Yes. As an as an armchair analyst like outside looking in i'm thinking you've got a world event team or a, a story writing team or you know we're focusing on forts or a new type of that but what are those teams actually doing uh if you don't mind yeah, i don't mean sure. like specific products but yeah, like, what, are they, what are their purposes great question so on cfes we have like live service we think about it in terms of three pillars there's seasons there's adventures and then and there's mysteries so there's there's three season teams that mm -hmm. are rotating so they're building a season you know six to nine months in the future and then mm -hmm. those those season teams are as one finishes another one spinning up one's being built in parallel so they're always rotating and planning mm -hmm. the future season so it's not like we would release captaincy and then we're planning season eight now season eight began while captaincy was still being built as the team's um, kind of work in parallel together and then we have uh, adventures and mysteries team which we've we've scaled up significantly so imagine those three season teams and then there's a team building adventures and mysteries mm -hmm. um, and that that team has that team has done quite a few things in the past they built um, you know vaults of the ancients they built the um, the sorry the lost shipment quests um they, they've built new quest types they've built some they did some live event work but now they're building adventures and mysteries taking that tall tales tech and applying it to these new episodic narrative experiences each month mm -hmm. so and then on top of all of that there's a central team at rare you know a central team of um audio and music with chloe and robin and you know all their wonderful audio designers you've got all the all the, the kind of central art team Mm -hmm. um, so there's 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 lots of discrete teams at rare, but Seathies specifically is is basically split into seasons, adventures, and mysteries with multiple mm -hmm. teams on each of those. So in many ways, that you know, the, there's a leadership team on each of those teams mm -hmm. um, that that I work with um, very closely, uh, and then there's there's obviously on an individual level, there's so many people across the team that, I'm, that I I personally speak to all the time. Um, but, but yeah, they're big releases. You know, the seasons. You know, in terms of 
rewards, um, the new features, you know, pulling it all together and wrapping it together. They've each got an individual team on them, owning it from the from the beginning to the end. That's brilliant. So cool. And what a massive amount of coordination it must take between all of them to pipeline all of this stuff properly. Did you guys, I'm sure that was something you guys learned over time. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I would say the all of that is important that you're, you know, the kind of the, the underpinnings of it and the processes, of course, we've we've learned a great deal on how to run a project like this at this scale. But I mean, you'd expect me to say this, but I believe it through and through. It, it comes down to the people. It's mm-hmm. the it's the dynamic and it's the communication. It's the relationships that get built up over you know, hard won relationships, right? Over many many complex problems solved together. And I think Sea of Thieves. We're in the position we're in, not just because of, I mean, it goes without saying, the way we think about pipelines, the way we think about our process, the way we think about running a live service is, of course, critical. Um, but I do think the thing that makes it feel a joy to work on and allows us to do really complex things is because of the personal relationships between people on the team. It's all about that team spirit and how that mm-hmm. team works together. And we are incredibly fortunate with a fantastic passionate bunch of people that want to keep doing new things for Sea of Thieves. So yeah, they're, it's a, they're, they're a wonderful bunch of people to work with. So cool. So cool. And I can only imagine given the world that you've created and uh, you know, wh- I want to talk a bit about that world just a bit uh, because sure. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Chris Johnson, super pack. I am he, met him several he, times, not yeah. seen Chris for a few years. He's awesome. Yeah, one of the best human beings I know, a role model in many ways, and he's lovely. Yes. He he is. He he's he in the early days uh, sherpaed me through Sea of Thieves and and helped me to understand uh, elements of pirating, and then gradually my crew found their own ways to do things, uh, whatnot. But everything small from organizing barrels for efficiency to how to properly manage an Ashen Lord and a Skull Fort and etc. And I want to talk about those world events that you've created because and the reason i think of cj is he often tells me just stories of what happened and if you're not familiar with sea of thieves the stories are still very exciting to hear Mm -hmm. and and many of them are based around interactions with world events pve moments that might invite pvp or or whatnot Uh, but i was curious what goes into creating a good world event like an like a national lord a fleet an athena ford etc that's an interesting question. Um, well, fundamentally, what they're designed to do is create these choke points for co- cooperation and conflict. So if you think about the world of Sea of Thieves and you've got multiple ships, multiple crews of players in that world, and you know, the game is designed that those people, in the absence of other ships, feel like they're playing a cooperative adventure game. You're out there doing a gold hoarder riddle, doing a tall tale, doing a, a voyage for any one of the trading companies. You're just there having that cooperative experience with your friends. But there are times when, unpredictably, you can come across other ships in the world and they're on their own adventures. Whereas the world events are designed to be these, I've never described them as this, they just enter my head. But imagine like they're almost like gravity wells on mm. the map that pull players together. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're an incentive to bring multiple crews together because of the offering of a of a 
exciting experience, but obviously, obviously over time it becomes the reward and how that reward can kind of supercharge their progression in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, obviously we have our Skeleton Forts, we have the Ashen Lords, we have the fleet battles. And then there is a, behind the scenes is actually a scheduler. And I've always loved this thing, but basically it's a, it's essentially like the puppet master behind the scenes that is rotating world event in and out. So we've mm-hmm. got, they're all kind of set up in terms of the frequency these events happen, what the turnover is, how long they stay live. If people don't engage with them, you know, how long they, how long they're live before they then get recycled back out again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's essentially a manager behind the scenes that sits on top of the weather systems, sits on top of the day night cycle, sits on top of, you know, all the kind of quest systems. And it's just running independently, just offering these opportunities to players. Is, is it dynamic or like, does it, uh, operate based on like what the players on the, in that particular server are doing it, it, or isn't, is it... it isn't dynamic although we have talked about that it, it isn't dynamic it's really just i guess it's a judgment and we've we've rebalanced it several times it's a judgment on how frequent we want to make certain activities um gotcha. so you, you must have heard you know anecdotes from from fans where you know when we first launched the game skull forts were every three hours and there's a huge sense of excitement around them. They were incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and based on that fan sentiment, we did make Skull Forts a more, well, an increased occurrence, you know, that kind of wonderful kind of opportunity to go raid a Skull Fort together. And then as a result of that, and a result of how our, our economy has inflated over the years and what, what, you know, different types of activities are now worth in terms of game time and gold amount, you know, we've added harder versions of those skeleton forts and we've added different styles of gameplay like the ashen lords that idea of a an on-land boss encounter mm-hmm. um uh, and, and of course the skeleton fleet battles those big um battles in the world and we had the we did have the ghost ship battle um with flameheart that mm-hmm. is is coming back by the way and that's, i don't think we've confirmed that yet. Oh. that is coming back it won't it won't have flameheart talking to you as a, as a, as a floating head um, because okay. he, he has moved on as a character. He's got a, a bigger part to play in a game to come. Um, but the core gameplay of the ghost ship world event, that is coming back with a burning blade. Okay. Um, and will our supplies be dwindling by now or what? Because every time he said that, I, I wanted to shoot him a little bit more. Uh, I know. I know. Um, no, <laughs> Flame Flameheart, Flameheart's going gonna, to gonna be back and he's going to be cooler than, ever, cooler than ever, hopefully. Um, but yeah, wo- yeah, world world events, yeah, world events are there just to stoke that in- that interaction between players. Um, and even even if there's no other players around, they're just they're just that kind of element on the horizon that is trying to draw you off the beaten path. You join Sea of Thieves because you wanted to do this particular voyage, or you just wanted to hang out with your friends. But then there's something tempting that cloud on the horizon that's tempting you into a bit of gameplay. The same way a message in a bottle would take you off the beaten track or a megalodon would attack it's just those little unpredictable elements that make your session play out differently and oftentimes mm-hmm. make our session times rather long in terms of playing for multiple hours at, at a time it's it's funny you you mentioned Flameheart returning because my next question the first statement i wrote there in my notes was that i love villains i love mm. Uh, he doesn't the yeah. big bads yeah the, the gold hoarder gray morrow mm. uh the, the the different names that we see as boss battles and such i think that's really cool my question was do we get to do battle in new ways with our big bads at some point um and it sounds like you've alluded to that with flameheart but 
do you guys anticipate us seeing more of the gold hoarder or I suppose his eyes are in use at the moment, but Mm -hmm. you know, like, do we, are we going to see more of our big bads? Yes. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, no, sure. I I mean, they're, they're, they're each, they've each got a part to play. They're, they're all, they're all, you know, part of the the theme of the game and you know, the game, the game at its heart, you know, separate from the the core gameplay but the what it is as a world and, and you know a bit of world building it's all about um these different pirate factions that are vying for power each with their own vision of the pirate life mm-hmm. um the pirate lord is one of those um it's all about the the honor of the crew and the crew bond above all else and that's just not the way that flameheart sees the world it certainly wasn't the way that gray marrow sees the world mm-hmm. um and the gold hoarder again the personification of greed in the sea of thieves like it's Pirate Lord says himself, it's, you know, stain of greed. Um, he'll always have a chance to come back. Um, it's just, I think we just want to do it in a way that feels satisfying and fulfilling to our fans. Mm-hmm. I love that. And uh, there's other elements of the game that I think are really neat, like monsters and the Kraken. And then we eventually got to see the Kraken and, and mm-hmm. things like that, I think, are just inviting to the game because those who are into the lore get to enjoy it. Those who just want the gameplay experience get to enjoy it. And there's everywhere in between. Um, yeah, de- definitely. And that that's exactly the mindset of how we develop the game. Um, you know, the lore is not is not a, a prerequisite to enjoying the game. You certainly don't need to dig into that stuff to enjoy it. On the surface, it's uh, just a fantastical pirate world to escape into either alone or with your friends, with other players. Um, but if you are, if, if the world does pique your interest, that, it's got its own set of rules. It's got its own set of consistencies, and it's it's got a depth to it that hopefully players find immersive and, and strengthens their stories. That was always the idea. You talked about some of the world events being gravity wells as as, as a way of I can't bringing players I use together. Like gravity wells. I think it's like I've gone all well, sci-fi okay. this evening. Yeah, but if you look at like uh, you know the Veil vale voyages or the Ashen Lord tornadoes, like. They look like gravity wells, so it kind of makes sense. <laughs> um, but I'm curious how you could, or how how the team goes about balancing PVE content mm. versus PVP uh, choke points or motivators for PVP. Um, and I've seen different, you know, thing things attempted, things worked, things didn't. You guys have adjusted, mm-hmm. yeah. But how do you go about creating something and balancing the two elements of, of gameplay? It's incredibly challenging. It, re- it really is. It's not just what the features provide on the surface. It's the it's the game within the game. It's that meta experience of how things can be exploited and how things can be used in a way that's not designed. Being able to predict all of those and then change plans preemptively before issues arise is is where a lot of our headspace is. Um, it's it's certainly easier said than done. Um, the way I've often think about Sea of Thieves is it's always the, it's a very delicate balance. It's a tightrope that we're always walking in terms of ensuring that there's enough people out there of different motivations that and, and PvP can be part of that experience. I mean, that was the game that we always pitched. It's a shared world adventure game. It's an adventure game where you will come across other players in the world and they may mean you good or they may mean you harm and that's where some of the most electric stories come from sea of thieves but at the same time there's also i mean i would say this and the team would share this like with the there's still there's still flaws 
in the game in terms of the prevalence of spawn camping in terms of giving players enough control over how they want to play i mean you can see some of that thinking in the the emissary system in terms of players being able to opt into more risk for greater reward to try and carve more structure into that shared world where you don't attack uh, players who are obviously clearly focused on pve and, and a big part of the season eight feature set that will be launching later this year is, is kind of firmly in that space of trying to give a certain subset of air players what they want but then that's really going to change the dynamic in the rest of the sandbox in terms of how players relate to each other so it's something it's such a huge area it, in many ways it's so unique to the sandbox of sea of thieves but you'll like we will keep knocking on that door and keep trying to carve more structure into this experience so that there's always that chance for that unpredictability um but there's just that touch more structure and people can have the experiences they want just that little bit more safeguarded um i want to make sure i'm tracking right and not misunderstanding you're suggesting pv or uh, in season eight there will be more like ways to focus more on PVE versus PVP. Is that what you're suggesting? It, season eight is focused firmly on PVP. I see. Okay. Um, but, I the P, okay. but that, that feature set will, because it all takes place in a shed, will then have a knock on effect to PVE. I um, see. So we, in a way that we actually hope will take some of the, will take some of the heat off PVE players. I mean, it'll still be, you'll, there'll still be PVE and PVP mixed. Absolutely. That's what Sea of Thieves is. Mm -hmm. um, but I think doing something in the PVP space will change the dynamic of how PVE players relate to people playing PVP. So I, I feel see. like I'm talking in code words. Um, but I'm trying well, to keep it anyway. have to. But no, yeah, certainly yeah, yeah. it is, Season 8 is firmly um, in the space of doing something for PVP players. Gotcha. Okay, cool. I, I was just making sure I tracked that properly because i didn't, I didn't want to misunderstand i suppose um i have a I, i'm curious though this was a this has been an interesting question that has popped up in multiple live service games recently sea of thieves uh but i've seen it be have uh, questions in fortnite and in, in destiny as well um and that is the matter of time gated story content mm -hmm. uh something i think you've you've answered and addressed before as you guys are adjusting to a new method of storytelling uh, you've got the tall tales in the game, a pirate's life and whatnot, but yeah. with adventures and mysteries, this is an, another way of telling stories in the sea of thieves. And on occasion people miss out. And I'm curious how you guys are uh, talking about that internally, the goods, the bads, the pros, the cons, uh, of doing time gated stuff in a live service game. Yeah. I mean, we'll start with the, the, the pros are certainly, and a particular story beat, a narrative experience that everybody cares about at the same time. So having mm -hmm. having Lost Sands is a great example of that, where you're really focusing the community on a very specific experience mm -hmm. um, for, for a certain period of time. And that undoubtedly has its advantages, especially when you think about the opportunity to change the world, like we did with Golden Sands, like we did with Shrouded Islands. Um, that 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 opens up a new area of creativity and ways that we can design those adventures that are not really um possible with tall tales where you have to design tall tales in a way that whatever we add to the game in the future these experiences are safeguarded and people will have the same experience when they play 
you know, day 100, but they had day one. So there's a certain element of the team being liberated there by, mm-hmm. especially because these adventures take place in a shared world. I think the downside is something that we, obviously we see it discussed, um, you know, adventures that last two weeks, we often hear players who will say, you know, I was on holiday that time. You know, you, you guys, I'm totally in. I'm I'm in on this story. I really want to know where the story would, was going. And, you, you know, I've missed that opportunity to come and play it. I mean, we do design the stories in, in around that in a way where mm-hmm. we kind of, we design them in arcs where there's a, there's a first story, there's a middle story, and then we call them finales internally. We obviously don't call them that um, to players, but they're like little three story arcs three adventure arcs mm-hmm. um and the idea is you know let's use the most recent example merrick's story kind of came to a conclusion and then the story's kind of gone off in a it's still building on the themes of what came before but it's kind of going off in a slightly different direction so there's another jumping on point for our players mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of adventures sorry we're we're about to be um eight adventures in so one of the things we're going to be doing shortly at the studio is, is just reflecting back on mm-hmm. the previous eight adventures and what what's the good, what's the bad, um, and how do we want to hone this delivery method for this kind of narrative content going forwards. So mm-hmm. generally feeling pretty good about them, but I certainly hear the feedback about the time limited nature. Um, it's something we'll, we will we have discussed and we will we'll continue to discuss in terms of what adventures will look like in the future. Sure, sure. I mean, double-edged sword, you know. It's, it is. It, it is. And, and adventures bring a lot of advantages. You know, having the, having the ability to have a beat of story every single month allows us, and this, and in a way that's not at the expense of new mechanics, new seasons, new features. We're doing all of that every three months as part of new seasons. Um, but having this constant release of episodic story content um, we we feel really good about that structure, um, but we will be honing and optimizing as we look to the future. I'm curious, do mysteries and adventures negate the idea of a big expansion like a pirate's life again or something similar to it? Do the, does the new method of storytelling like negate an expansion of, of story in some way? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I, someone asked a very similar question Um I think it was EGX um, around that. What does this mean for tall tales in the future? And, and honestly, I'd never say never. I think if there was the, what adventures give us is we're not tra- like threads aren't going cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, char- characters that some of our fans, you know, really love, they get the opportunity to come back a lot sooner without us mm-hmm. going dark for a long period of time to build, you know, you know, bigger, more persistent, tall tales. But that doesn't mean that we won't ever do that. I think it's what makes sense for the storytelling and what makes sense for what it brings to Sea of Thieves. So they're completely, in, in, even though the, they're just two ways of delivering a story, mm-hmm. um, like I see them as, as two completely separate things. So that's, that's not to say we, we've, we've got anything planned at the moment, but never say never. I'm curious, uh, in the world and the lore of Sea of Thieves, which is expanding, and you guys have the new novel out, uh, and, and that's I'm so excited to read that I've not gotten to yet, um, but as you guys continue to explore uh, new ways of storytelling with Sea of Thieves, is there a pullback effect? Because in bringing in Jack Sparrow, I think a lot of eyes came to the game, <laughs> but in many ways, Jack Sparrow 
wasn't initially a Sea of Thieves character. And I think about mm-hmm. other pirate games that could uh, have crossovers or, or more Easter eggs, probably is the right way to say that. <laughs> uh, it, does that hurt your ability to tell a Sea of Thieves story to try and bring others in from outside? Or is it just a different way of, of expanding your lore? I think it's just a different way. I, I think, as you mentioned there, A Pirate's Life certainly brought in a lot of players for Sea of Thieves. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that it was a moment in time. It was a moment where lots of players came in for A Pirate's Life and, you know, a lot of those players also stuck around in Sea of Thieves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, we kind of we subside back down to our kind of you know, kind of the base of where we were before. So it's not, it's, I wouldn't really say it has an impact. I mean, part of the opportunity with something like Pirates of the Caribbean, um, beyond just the fact that it's just so awesome and we're fans, it's, and so cool. it's just a fantastic so cool. opportunity to, to to bring those characters to our world. The opportunity was always, you know, let, let you see the Sea of Thieves through their eyes. And mm-hmm. the goal was always, you, you know, this was non-negotiable really, you have to leave the Pirates' Life story with a greater appreciation for the Sea of Thieves world. And that's where the story started. Jack, in those movies, wanted freedom, the freedom for the Pirates' Life to live forever. And the idea that there could there's a world beyond the horizon, the Sea of Thieves, where the, the freedom of the Pirates' Life can live forever, it's, mm-hmm. it makes sense in terms of, well, that's where Jack would want to be more than anywhere else in the world. And that was really the great unlock for our story. So. It just made sense in 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 terms of how the Sea of Thieves was was positioned with Jack's story and Davy Jones' story, um, but honestly, honestly, no. I, I just think they're they're completely different things, and the one thing that we're all passionate about is you know Sea of Thieves. The Sea of Thieves. The Sea of Thieves is. Stitcher Jim and Gold Hoarder and Flameheart and the Pirate Lord and what all of those means and, and, and the story of Jack Sparrow. It's it's just a new way to look at that core world building, to see it through Jack's eyes, to see it through Gibbs' eyes and David Jones' eyes. It's you know, the Sea of Thieves is the Sea of Thieves and it's a story we want to keep telling. It's very heartwarming because that's how that's uh unintentionally by you, that's very much how I think of it as well. Oh. So I get a cool <laughs> win on that one. <laughs> I have uh, three more questions for you before I let you go, if you don't mind. Absolutely, um, I'm sure. Curious about uh, lessons learned from the most recent Community Day. You guys did some things a little bit differently in terms of increasing the spawn rate of ancient coin uh, skeletons. Which, for any listener that's unfamiliar, that's uh, real world money that you know you take out the skeleton and then that's added to your real world money coin purse to be used in the Emporium. Uh, but you also made some adjustments to Golden Hour and had a social media element to it. Uh, what lessons did you guys pick up from this most recent Community Day? I think that's still I th- there's there's meetings I haven't been privy to yet in terms of what those learnings are. Uh, what I will say is I absolutely adored seeing all those stories on the day of people camping out on certain islands and, and getting these multiple skeletons. And you know, some people did really well like some people are like i've just i've had 16 ancient skellies over the last few hours i mean it's pretty it's, it's pretty cool um i'm not sure did you were you not so lucky were you playing that day i i was unable to i'd been away from from the game for a, a little bit of time unfortunately I, I i had a spell of the covid but i'm on the other end and doing much better now Good. so i just missed out that's all good to hear it no um 
Christina McGrath, our head of community, she just she does a wonderful job alongside her team and the, and the rest of the teams in pulling together the community days and obviously the spirit of them, you know, celebrating the community. It's not just a game on that mm-hmm. day; it's, it's people sharing their fan creations. It's it's a wonderful day. Um, what I loved about the most recent one with the the ancient skeletons and the gold was just it's just a, it's another little another little change. It's another feather in their cap, doing things slightly differently for those days. And I think that's the way we think of them in the future. Is just trying different things each time um but uh i did i did see some stats for the ancient coins um that got given away and 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 how many ancient skellies we got in the world and it's cool and i think i think some players appreciated it for sure i i hope so because there's so many cool things to be found in the game standard but also in the emporium and and having them pointing a few people there is, is really neat i just uh decked out my ship with the crypt stuff because oh, i'm a yeah. big halloween fan and sea of thieves to me has always been a ghostly game i've always loved the skeletons mm, the supernatural yeah right yeah exactly and so uh, i always get get really hyped for the for the halloween-esque type stuff you know maybe not halloween specific but you know what i mean the spookies and such yeah it's it, um, it, it's great yeah I, lo- I love the i love the one we um we released last month uh this month sorry the the bleak heart manor stuff i love that Oh yeah, yeah it's creepy. Very, it's very cool. But yeah, the the the, the kind of crypt set is awesome with our stained glass window sails and the mm-hmm. yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, I have a, a bigger question for you. I suppose maybe a more meta question for you in terms Ooh. of see if these. And I was wondering if you could discuss. Uh, the impact of so many ways for players to access Sea of Thieves, and I mean this in the sense of. Players can purchase the game on console or PC proper. They can access via Game Pass, Game Pass for PC. They can play Mm. via the cloud. I mean, there's a lot of ways for players to interact with your world. And I'm curious the impact it has on you guys in terms of development. That's a great question. I think, I mean, we were, we were, you know, the first first party game in Game Pass, which, Mm. you know, going back a few years now, and that wasn't something, I mean, that lined up really well. It wasn't something that we planned as when we started building Sea of Thieves. We, we didn't know there would be a, a service like Game Pass. But before we, we, you know, we ended up, you know, Destiny took its course and, and that became a thing. We always talked about Sea of Thieves in the way of, wouldn't it be wonderful if this game was someone's first multiplayer game and it could change perceptions of what a multiplayer game could really be. I always felt like the creative opportunity with Sea of Thieves. It was the, you feel like you're having that cooperative adventure experience, but you're in this shared world and all the stories that come from that. And at the heart of Sea of Thieves, it's it's players playing as a crew on a pirate ship. So any way that we could lower the barriers to entry was something that we were passionate and excited by. So... For example, when we were talking very early on about how we'd release content for this game, it it very, very, well, almost immediately, we, we kind of made that rule of, no, all the new experiences, all the new, new content in our world will be free. Like, there's not going to be a barrier between people who have paid and people who haven't paid. All of the experiences, you now we from everything, anniversary of Pirates Live, every, all of their seasons. It's just we don't want to separate our players. So, again, that, just that whole mindset of not putting barriers in place that prevent players playing together. It's a big part of our progression system as well. You can 
you can you can play with your over 900 hours luke with your 900 hours of gameplay you could play with me if i was a day one player and you could share your pirate legend voyages where you could take me on vale of the ancients you could take me to the shores of gold you got access to all of those things and there's no barriers between us playing together um so i've often thought about platforms in, in a similar way if there's easier ways to cross play as well that that crews can form up and have a wonderful CFE's experience and, and, and a certain players playing on Xbox, another players playing on PC, another players playing on Xcloud with touch controls. It's like that, that, why wouldn't you want that world? Um and I think the 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 lucky part of it, I won't say lucky, but privileged part of it is that CFE's has consistently been a popular title in Game Pass. Um I, I mean we could all hazard a guess as to why I, I i definitely believe it still stands apart it's a very different unique experience um i think pirates as a theme is incredibly popular and, and, and i think certainly after all these years we, we do a good job of you know that giving giving players that full pirate experience um but it's also been an incredibly well received on steam as well i mean it's it's done really really well um i know there's a plan in the future that we will release um sales figures i know we're building up to a big milestone um but it's done incredibly well as well you know you can think of some of the the discourse that you got especially around game pass around um, this what's this going to do to game sales and honestly, <laughs> i honestly don't think it's it's affected us at all you know we've been incredibly you know it's been in, in the top sellers of steam consistently since launch um it's in the you know the top 10 of game pass consistently um sales are great engagement numbers are great it's um it's yeah it the chance to take the experience to more people and not put barriers in is something we are completely you know enamored by and supportive of that's brilliant that's that is just so cool and uh, but you'd I expect to us think... to say that right luke you know like we when you make a game you want as many people as possible to have to have access to it and be able to experience it and especially when there's friend groups that you know play on pc they're, they're split across xbox and you know the, the fact they can just play together and have a sea of these experiences that's what we'd want to see anyway so um yeah very happy that's the case i am as well but i do think it's a newer mindset and i say newer in a, a grand sense of the word mm. because there there was a, a a time when game pass was announced and suddenly if you bought the game on pc you also got it on console with that early game pass era people weren't sure what that meant hmm. uh they, you know to get it both yeah. and people were like well this is going to damage sales and this isn't going to do well and the idea that that rising tides lift all boats it would seem so obvious on some levels but there were others who lamented it and um, it's nice to hear that that you're seeing success from it being available in so many places and yeah uh, yeah oh so, sorry i'm sorry to cut you off though I was, I was going to say as well that i mean that's one small part of it in terms of success and how you quantify that. But mm -hmm. I think it's so much more than that. I think it's the, I think it's part of the reason why the game, which is a certain contributor to the fact that the game has this thriving community because there aren't mm -hmm. those barriers in place and the community is quite, it's, it's a live game. So the community are the lifeblood of the game that, that, you know, the six, the popularity of the game you know, people getting passionate about it is what's allowed us to keep building the game over all these years and have ambitious plans for the future. So the fact that there aren't those barriers in place, you know, it pays dividends in terms of 
the community and and getting people in the community that then it's not just that it's not just a core console audience you're also drawing from pc and there's people mm-hmm. that play for like yourself you know hundreds of hours and beyond and there's there's always people that we meet that just started playing yesterday because they've checked it out on xcloud or they they've seen it in the top 10 of game pass and they've just given it a go it allows people to to keep checking out the game and and ensure that it stays relevant which gives us the right to keep building content for it do you guys see a big uh i don't know about big but like do you see a healthy element of xcloud i'm thinking about the sad news of stadia passing and the people mm. affected by that but yes. cloud gaming seems to be something many companies are investigating in uh and and xbox has been there for some time do you guys see, is there a metric that you guys watch at all as far as xCloud or is that a different branch of, of development? No, I, I mean, I personally don't have any numbers to hand. I'm sure someone does at Rare. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it, it's, it's, it's really about that at the moment. I think it's just providing players with another option, right, as part of being part of being part of Xbox and being part of Game Pass, you've got access to your games on the go and it's just it's another way to consume them and there's multiple windows into the worlds that we create. Um, I, I don't think we're really in the mindset yet of driving numbers and success there. I think it's just giving giving our, giving our players a different option um, mm. in which to play. And, and and I would imagine, again, this is, this is just me surmising, but I, there's probably not a great deal of people that play exclusively i think it's just mm-hmm. a convenience option when you are away from your um main machine you're away from your console or your pc you've got this option to play on the go whether you're on holiday or you you're on the train or you know you're a university campus you've got another way to dive back into those worlds which it's like so it's awesome right if like if someone right. had told me when i was growing up that that would be an option i mean it would blow your mind wouldn't it yeah, no, absolutely. And I've, I've used it that way many times, like jump into the Emporium, grab something that I wanted to grab, like an emote before it cycled out or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, that's how I've used it many times. Uh, and I'm curious if it allows people around the world where there where cloud gaming is more accessible, to, you know, with higher speeds of internet or whatnot, if you if there's a kick up there, I'd, that'd be something that cool to come back to years yeah. from now. Yeah. All right, Mike, my last question for you. Okay. Yeah, this is, this is the one. All right. <laughs> the Sovereigns, the Grand Maritime Union. What's up with that? What's going on with them? Something, there's, there's something afoot. I mean, they don't, they're not even taking my money when I turn it into them. I got to know. Mm. So, so if, you, if you personally spotted something about the Sovereigns, that sets you, set you uneasy? Uh, just a bit. I mean, it just seems real odd. They're very elitist, you know. They only talk mm-hmm. to captains. Uh, let's say my, you know, my captain steps off the crew, and then suddenly they're not going to take my money. But they never take a piece of the pie. It mm-hmm. just seems odd. It's like they're gathering data or intelligence. And I got to tell you, mm. I don't like it. I don't like. I mean, that, <laughs> let's not. I'm saying I don't like it. But they're very convenient, so I have not forfeit anything. I'm still going to them for convenience sake. But it's almost like it's almost yep. like they know that, isn't it? It's almost like they know um how convenient their services that they're giving you um, mm-hmm. yeah they're very astute of you here mike very astute um yes and obviously the choice of that word is the sovereigns and how they present themselves is very deliberate it's it's all i will say as i think it's it's an interesting thought experiment to think about the phase or the age we're in in sea of thieves now where there are these very different pirate factions you know the gold hoarder you know, representing greed, flame heart, which is you know domination by any means, the would be king of the sea of thieves, 
um, and the Pirate Lord, they're all still pirates. They've all just got a different vision of that pirate life. Mm-hmm. Um, and being in the Sea of Thieves, it's a fantastical pirate world. So who they are literally transforms them. The, you know, the flame heart, the burning passion in here has to be this fierce pirate leader. Um, he's personified through the way he looks and his burning, flaming chest. And, you know, it's this supernatural spin on what a pirate leader would be. Um, but they're still pirates to the core, even the Dark Brethren, um, who are allied with Davy Jones, you know, with Wonder and Amaranta and Duke. They're, they're still pirates. They're just different kinds of pirates. But it's an interesting thought experiment to think of. If, could there be a shared enemy for those, mm-hmm. for all of those factions? And obviously the answer is yes. So mm-hmm. rich with potential for sure. Indeed. And I would love to watch them, the the pirates, before they come to their shared enemy. This is just me just spitballing. Like the idea of them fighting each other on the way to that. Still cool. That's happening. That's happening right now for sure. Yes, it is. It's so cool. It certainly will. Yeah. Well, you'll you'll see more of that. Exciting. Well, let's. I think that's a good spot to stop the interview here. Mike Chapman of Rare, creative director at Sea of Thieves. This was a joy, a pleasure, and uh, with no apology to anyone, I fanboyed on this one. So thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Luke, for having me on. That was great. Great questions. Thank you.